Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Moni Jensen, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics like we do twice a month. And today, the subject is the infiltration of politics and sports and its new spin-off, sports washing. So this word, which we are just getting acquainted with, was coined in 2018 by Amnesty International and describes how countries with questionable democracies and poor human rights records clean their reputations by becoming the epicenter of global athletic events. And I'm sure you are thinking of some places. Sports washing becomes an issue as Qatar and China host the most important sporting championships in the world. So today we'll be joined by Altamar sports analyst Nick Sprague, who has followed this controversial practice and will help us decipher why 2022 is shaping up to be one of the most politically charged sporting years in recent memory. I love that word, sports washing, Mooney. It's such a great word because it says it all in like one small world. And, I, you know, I think that thanks to technology and accelerated recruiting practices and the interconnected world, sports have gone fully global. And that's great for fans and advertisers, but it also allows visibility about what's going on behind the scenes, like everything that goes global and depends on technology. We get to see a lot of what's going on because stuff comes out fast and from sexual abuse to poor behavior from athletes to racism and bullying by coaches and governments. In the tennis world, many of us felt outrage for Djokovic's vaccine antics before the Australian Open this year. And we all felt fear for Peng Shui's safety after denouncing members of the Chinese government, not to mention the grotesque spectacle of having a Uyghur athlete light the Olympic flame when Beijing is committing human rights atrocities against the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And people everywhere have a position about Colin Kaepernick's knee. Even Eminem during the Super Bowl halftime show this month made public his position. And so the rocky marriage of sports and politics, it, it isn't new, but the scandals just seem to be exploding and exploding in recent years. Of course, Peter, it's not new and it's gone on for a very long time. We all remember hearing about the Christmas football truce in 1914, where war suddenly stood still for 90 minutes while German and British troops played a game. Boycotts for political reasons have made an appearance since the Cold War as the U.S. boycotted the Olympics in Moscow and the Soviets the following one in L.A. And sport has also served as a tool for unity. There was a movie made about Mandela uniting South Africa with rugby. There's baseball diplomacy in Cuba under Obama, North Korean athletes in the last uh, Olympics in Pyeongchang and so on. But the main difference between before and now is money, the amount of money in sports today. I, I remember that movie about Mandela uniting it. Invictus was such a great movie, and I'm such a sap, so I was like, I loved it. Did, Look, did you, you cry, absolutely... Peter? You're a I crier. Cry. Yeah, I I I'm it. a crier. <laughs> As fans enjoy globalizations, you know, the issue, Mooney, is that countries with poor track records on freedom for their citizens are having literally, forgive the pun, a field day as they take strategic measures to clean up their reputation. And the tactic involves hosting high-level teams, venues, global events. This year, the Spanish Euro Cup and the World Soccer 
championship the formula one races and the winter olympics are hosted by the saudis the chinese and the qataris the introduction of sovereign funds from authoritarian regimes into the sports world is a major disruptive force on everything if you don't believe me just ask the top golfers who are considering exiting from the pga to form a saudi funded super league so the difference, Mooney, I think, is often about the effort on the part of countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar and China and Russia to launder this international image, this bad international image, and make some money in the process. Saudi Arabia has done it well, for example, by taking over Newcastle United as an example. And, you know, it's a British soccer team, but also they've done it by hosting the Spanish Super Cup and the Formula One races. You know, poof, it's magic. A country without a sports stars is now suddenly the star of the sporting world. Positive country image, media exposure, tourism exposure, along with global benefits for rolling out promises of reforms. All of this is just great part of the benefits. And I'm sure Taya, who is the only one on this show who actually is a real athlete, has something to say about this. So let's, Taya, tell us what your take is. Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So guys, this is really a fascinating topic. I came to the U.S. on a tennis scholarship to Division I in college, and today's episode is really especially close to my heart. And 2022 really seems to be the year of sport washing, and with the Winter Olympics in China and the World Cup in Qatar in November... I mean, the World Cup in particular is something I'm looking at from a social justice lens because reports show dozens of migrant workers have died during the construction of the World Cup stadiums, and many employees have several months of missing salaries for their work. It's just terrible. And of course, like you guys mentioned, Peter Muni, countries like Saudi Arabia, they're spending hundreds of millions of dollars in hosting Formula One races or purchasing Premier League teams. So how are we combating sport washing? It's nothing really concrete. Newcastle United had no issue accepting nearly half a billion dollars from Saudi Arabia, and neither did Paris Saint-Germain in 2011 when it was bought by the Qataris. FIFA president actually just touted that the 2022 World Cup in Qatar would be a celebration of football and social inclusion. And even though Formula One star Lewis Hamilton spoke out for quote-unquote equality, he had no issue accepting his prize at the Formula One race in Saudi Arabia just last year. The diplomatic boycotts from countries like the U.S., Australia, Canada, and the U.K. at the Beijing Winter Olympics is honestly little more than performative theater. Not a single athlete boycotted the Games. I feel pretty strongly about this, and I think it's something we need to watch very closely, especially this year. So the only way to put a stop to sports washing is for the Western world to stand up against it. But the West is not doing that. Not at all. Instead, it's allowing sport washing to blossom. So as always, I'd love to hear what you think about this. Join the conversation by tweeting at Altamar Podcast. Indeed, Thea, very little pushback from the West. And China, recent host of the Winter Olympics, faced great criticism before the events, received threats from the U.S. about the treatment of Uyghur Muslims, like Peter mentioned. But during the sports events, what happens is the dollars are rolling in, athletes are in town, and much of the ill will is somehow postponed. And there's been much talk about the seizure of power in Hong Kong and threats against athletes, and even Peng Shui has backed down. So what do we do? 
Nick Sprague is with us again to help us answer that question. And when we talk sports, we talk to Nick. Nick Sprague is sports and technology entrepreneur with unique expertise in strategy, business development, government affairs, and international law. Nick recently led successful fundraising rounds for sports tech leaders, Oreco and No Cap Sports, and served as the head of special projects for Inter Miami. Nick is the chairman of the board of Love Football, a global NGO who partners with impoverished communities to build safe places to play, and wrote the original concept of the two Escobar's critically acclaimed by Sports Illustrated as the finest soccer documentary ever. And now, because he joins us every time we talk about sports, we're going to call him our sports analyst, Nick Rock. Welcome again to Altamar. Welcome back to Altamar. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's get it, guys. It's good to be back with the family. I love sports analysts. That's fun. So you can maybe help us clear up this gigantic transformation in the world of sports where fans and social media and the global composition of different teams has changed. We also see new actors showering money on teams, venues, events. What is the landscape now and where is it going? Yeah, I think as we follow the progression over the last 100 years, there's a couple key things that are driving where we are today. And I think the first core concept is sports teams, sports leagues are media hubs. This is not something that would have been intuitive maybe 30 years ago, but it's very clear that owning a sports team or being involved in a sports league provides you with incredible reach from a distribution perspective. So you can see how the same interests and incentives that would drive actors to wanting to be active participants in the media industry will also create the same incentives to drive actors to be participants in the sports industry now. So I think that's a key theme, Mooney, that explains kind of this evolution. And I, I would want to talk about three buckets of returns that sports investors typically seek over the last, say, 100 years. First is winning and bragging rights, right? And I think the romantic notion in us says that this is how most of sports began. It was about competition. Leagues were created because cities wanted to compete against each other, because individuals wanted to compete against each other to see who was the best, right? Not necessarily any financial rewards, but it's about the joys of competitive success. And I think the second bucket of returns that investors in sports look for is economic returns. These are the more straightforward, I invest this amount of money in 10 years, I'm going to be able to sell the team for a lot more money than I invested today, and I'm going to get a return on it. And maybe even while I'm owning and operating the team, I might be able to get an operational profit, although that's not usual in the world of sports, which is something we'll talk about later when we talk about sovereigns. And then I think the third bucket is intangible benefits. And this is all of the benefits that can accrue to you as the owner of a sports team or league, be it goodwill, community favor, political favor, social benefits, brand awareness, all the types of things you would see with the benefits of owning a media company. You get these benefits from owning a sports team. And that progression, you know, what owners seek, which of these benefits is pretty, I would say, it's not exclusive to one category of investor. So when we talk about sovereigns today investing in sports, I know, Muni, you think a lot about the intangible benefits, but that's not so different 
from when, you know, the oil magnate from Texas decides to buy the NFL team in Texas and also looking at intangible benefits. So these same themes have just been really accelerated because of the media company power that sports teams have today. So you mentioned the three buckets, and this is a vicious or virtuous cycle, depending on where you're standing. And you, you've mentioned this as, as a business, but I think the new element here is that this is occurring in a global sphere and not local or, or Texas buying Texas. And the money there is multiplying even more. Can you explain that global phenomenon? The reach with streaming is now incredible, right? And so I can have my, my team, which maybe before was really a community-based asset, and through streaming, and particularly through social media for kind of non-game-oriented content, I can basically get to any region of the world. So you can imagine a scenario where uh, I can be a Los Angeles Lakers fan living in Manaus in Brazil, and I can watch every single game. I can consume almost every piece of content out there about the Lakers. I probably know more about the Lakers than 95% of people that live in Los Angeles and maybe even go to games as season ticket holders. That's an incredible change, right? This ability for fans to be global in a meaningful sense, to really have a connection to the team. And so I think that's the, the power of the distribution is just so different with the technology we have today versus what it was in the past. And so this creates a new set of incentives, depending on who the, the investor is. Not every investor is, is necessarily looking at that as their primary objective, but it certainly creates a nice canvas. If you want to get reach globally, leveraging the popularity of this particular team, you can now do it in quite an easy way. Nick, let me try to broaden our conversation. I mean, we have seen in the business world, not in the sports world, like this movement away from Milton Friedman's obsession with shareholders, like just it's just about the return, to a new obsession, and a lot of it is show, but some of it isn't show, with stakeholders, like the community and broader social benefits. And it seems like sports is in a way going in the opposite direction. I mean, you're getting this these things happening. Saudi Arabia and Qatar are suddenly hosting these amazing events. We're having the entire soccer schedule has moved away from its normal schedule to fit the Qataris schedule because you know nobody can play the World Cup in in the summertime in the desert. Formula One in Saudi Arabia. And it just seems like it's the money is winning out over, not, not to mention what we've seen in the recent times with Djokovic and his visa to Peng Shui and, and this the sense that she's basically in a kangaroo court being coerced to make these statements. I don't know. I just get the feeling that money and power is actually winning over shareholders and societal benefits, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, I think it's self-selective a little bit, Peter. And I think you're seeing, and I'll, I'll give one example. You look at the contrast between some of the global sports and the investment opportunities that are there. And, and as you said, lots of sovereign money pouring into properties like the English Premier League, the, you know, the hosting of the World Cup, hosting of Olympic events, kind of these truly global sports. And then you see 
other properties like the NFL, which is still primarily a, a U.S. domestic property, even though it's the most lucrative property in all of sports, right? So you have you have different different places for different folks with different needs. When I look at the NFL today, you know, there's no sovereign money in the NFL. I think a lot of people would say the NFL is 100% business focused. It's 100% focused on providing, uh, making money for the owners, let's say, and is is ruthlessly capitalistic in the view of, of how they run the league, right? And there's no sovereign influence whatsoever over the NFL. And so I think when you see these types of investments coming from sovereigns, it's not just that the rich and powerful are necessarily winning out to promote their agenda. It's that sports themselves present an opportunity, whether you're a sovereign, whether you're, you know, an oil magnate, whether you're a community-based fan group, you know, whether you're an interest-based group, they provide a platform uh, for you to be able to provide the exposure. But not every platform is going to be open. So Formula One might say, we welcome all investment from major properties. I seriously doubt that the NFL would allow a sovereign owner to come into the league for its own political reasons. So I think that it's varied across sport, you know, how quickly and how fast this movement is, but certainly at the stakeholder level of players, coaches, the ecosystem of service providers in and around those teams and fans, the number one bucket of return that those stakeholders usually seek is winning. And number two is financial, right? And so there seems to be a very clear alignment of interest between somebody that wants to bring major financial resources and give you a competitive advantage to win with the interest of the principal stakeholders who are actually carrying out you know, the sport or the competition themselves. So there does seem to be a natural synergy between these two groups coming together and reinforcing one another. That's so interesting. But then take it away from sports and now move it into politics. What's the political impact of countries like Qatar and Saudi Arabia and China, often with sort of less than free societies, often quite repressive societies, making these broad inroads into sports? I mean, they're not only doing it for the financial gain. The rationale, and I'm sure if you had a, a management committee for a sovereign wealth fund and you had you know 10 members who are all getting to vote yes or no, do we do this, do we not, and why do we do it? I'm sure that even among that group, there will be a difference of opinion as to, as to what benefits might accrue, whether it might be a good financial decision. But I think certainly there is a broad consensus that there can be a PR benefit to this type of investment into sports, right? Politically, I think the question is, what is the audience that they're trying to speak to? So, you know, if China decides to host the Winter Olympic Games, uh, if their objective in doing so was to improve their image in the United States or among sports fans in the United States, I would tell you, probably not going to be very successful, Peter. <laughs> I don't think that would be 
that, that's not the reason why you'd spend, you know, $500 billion or $100 billion or, or whatever it is you spend to host. There's probably much more efficient ways to curry favor with the U.S. public than hosting the Winter Olympics, which in some ways will struggle to get real traction here because they're competing against the NBA and the Super Bowl and sort of all these other things, right? But maybe that plays very well to an audience in Scandinavia who really doesn't have any connectivity whatsoever with China on a normal basis, but has a very strong positive correlation with Winter Olympic sports and then is, is going to be following very closely what's happening with their athletes and maybe associating it in, in a positive way of, well, here's a country that's providing a nice platform for my favorite athletes to really, you know, compete and, and demonstrate. So I think the political benefit, it depends very much on what is the audience you're trying to target. And my sense is that the benefits that some of the sovereigns might get from these investments in some countries are very different from in other countries. And I think Ironically, like in the UK, where you see the highest amount of this investment in the Premier League, I really don't know today if an English soccer fan has a stronger positive connotation towards the sovereigns who sponsor English soccer than they did 20 years ago. I have no idea. But what I do know is that Manchester City fans are very happy that their team wins and are very happy that the team is, is quite relevant and, and, and is globally dominant, right? And so I, I don't know if they're accruing the benefit that they think they're accruing in certain markets, but maybe in other markets, it, it works quite well. So I think a, a great follow-up on this too is looking more at Western governments, right? Because right now we're talking so much about social justice and you know, environmental social governments and all, all those parts that we see in business. You know, there's a lot of condemning of you know, the Winter Olympics being held in China and the diplomatic boycott of many Western countries but yet they don't seem to be doing anything about it, right? They're condemning it, but then, you know, athletes are still competing at the Winter Olympics. So how do you view that sort of um, dichotomy there? I think it's not different from the controversies that we often have in U.S. sport around what happens when an owner of a team misbehaves. And you see that there's very different sets of rules that are created depending on which league, right? Depending on which federation. I think you could take owners engaging in the same, you know, deplorable behavior, and there might be a different set of standards as to how that would be treated in the NBA versus how that might be treated in the NFL or in one of the women's sporting leagues. And so I think it's actually a very similar discussion. And I think it's very self-policing. I think these organizations are setting their own standards. They're mostly not governmental organizations, right? Whether it's international federations or whether it's the professional leagues themselves, they're setting kind of their own standards. And some leagues, like the Premier League, is going to say, we welcome any and all capital that wants to come in and make this league the best league in the world. And that's, in a lot of ways, some people would tell you that contributes to English soft power. The fact that the English Premier League is viewed in every single country in the world, and England is associated with being the best soccer property in the world, that's soft power towards England. And the owners within England are happy to welcome any and all capital that supports that objective. 
right? Just like within the NFL, if there's a controversy among one of the owners, the incentives as to whether we protect him or whether we push him out, et cetera, they're kind of determined within the league. And so I think it, it, it comes back to these are very fluid standards and they're very specific to each league and federation. Obviously, societal pressure and government pressure often changes the compass through which these leagues or, or teams see these things. But it's really hard to say this pressure is going to lead to this outcome with this specific group because the interests are just vastly different from league to league, federation to federation. Let's talk about nationalism and patriotism and how that has evolved in the world of sports. Now we, we have local teams around the world populated with foreign players and national teams made up of players that are, you know, from foreign teams and only meet for championships. And we Colombians know how that looks. Before, obviously, patriotism and nationalism were expressed like by Cuba and the USSR. And, and we did see Putin in the bleachers by himself. How has this influx of global money changed the concepts of patriotism and nationalism? So I think there's two things really interesting. The first is nationalism still is incredibly powerful, right? I mean, right now, the Winter Olympics are going on. A lot of people have no connection to many of these sports. You could have the same participants doing the exact same thing under the umbrella of a league and nobody would watch. But just because you wrap the flag around it, all of a sudden people are watching around the world and there's huge popularity around certain sports that people don't even know what they're watching. And I think, you know, in the US, a very clear example of that that I would give is, is like women's soccer. You could take the same players, put them in a domestic women's league, put it in the same venue and sell it as professional soccer or you can wrap the flag around it and sell it as the U.S. women's national team. And you're going to see a very different reaction from the market to those two properties. So I would say nationalism and patriotism are still alive and well and are still incredibly successful strategies for selling sport. And that has not changed. Obviously, club sport has grown much more in the last several decades than the national team sport and has kind of caught up in popularity. But it's still quite popular. I think the second issue that's so fascinating is you mentioned the example of sort of the old Soviet bloc investing in their sports programs in order to kind of get a PR bump every four years at the Olympics by showing, you know, we're the best, you know, so maybe Cuba invested heavily in their boxing program because they liked the fact that their boxers would win gold medals and it would portray a certain image about the country and the USSR loved investing in, in hockey and, and weightlifting and sort of all in basketball and all these other things. In those cases, that was sovereigns investing in themselves to accrue a PR benefit. I think what is interesting today is we see a lot of sovereigns investing in others to accrue a PR benefit, right? So when the Saudis choose to invest in Formula One, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure if there's a Saudi driver in Formula One. I'm not sure if, if there's any connection to Saudi whatsoever in Formula One. 
but they're making a bet that investing in somebody else's property is going to accrue a benefit to them. And I think the jury is still out on that, Moni. I, I don't think we really know. It'll be a fascinating subject to look at 10, 15 years from now. I don't think we really know if sovereigns sinking billions of dollars into somebody else's team or league really accrue the benefits that maybe sitting around the table, the investment committee thinks or, or the sovereign thinks that they're going to be accruing today. It's going to accrue something and it's going to have a major impact like you framed this conversation. It's shaking up the world of sports. But I don't know if it's having the exact impact that their expectations are in the same way that the Soviet Union investing in their athletes to compete at the Olympics would have had. I don't know that either, but it certainly sounds like they're all very convinced that that's the right direction to go. So I guess let me ask you the last question because we're running out of time and I'm going to ask you for a short clear answer. So what's sports going to look like in 10 years? Is it going to be dominated by these sovereigns from non-democratic nations, all sort of trying to get into these major leagues? Or is this going to wane as they discover that it doesn't have the juice they thought it had? Well, when I look at the example of China and soccer, it's a very clear example where China was hot on soccer. Chinese companies were buying up Inter Milan and AC Milan and buying up teams in the Premier League and investing and bringing players to China. And then the political winds changed. And now China's not hot on soccer. And all that has kind of has kind of backed off. And so I think we are definitely going to see changes in the political winds will have an impact on you know, how the future plays out. And I don't think it's going to be linear just because of one thing is happening today that that's what it's going to mean 10 years from now. Second thing is it's going to be self-selecting. I think you'll see plenty of sovereign money continue to pour into certain properties. But as I mentioned before, I don't think you're going to see foreign ownership in the NFL at all. And that's still the biggest sports property in the world. So I think it's going to be very specific to each property. And then the third thing I'll say is it's going to get more complicated. And one prediction that I have that it's really going to make this discussion more complex. One of the biggest issues that we face today is gender inequality in sport, particularly at the professional level when it comes to what athletes are paid and what opportunities are given to female athletes. And one prediction I have for you, Peter, is that in 10 years, that gap is going to be significantly closer than it is today. And I believe it will be sovereigns that will be the ones that will step in heavily to start funding this gender gap. There are plenty of smart people sitting around those tables who I think are going to say, you know, we've been investing in these shiny little toys over here, but actually, if we really wanted to get clever about this and really wanted to do something about image, what we really should be doing is investing in women's sport. And I think that's one prediction I have that sovereign money is going to flood women's sport and look to sort of gain the benefits, the PR benefits of closing the gender gap, which all of us agree is a problem that needs to be addressed by the sports world today. But we don't necessarily know who's going to address it and how. I think the sovereigns will. It's a great provocative ending, Nick. Nick Sprague, thank you for joining us on Altamar again. It's great to see you. Thank you, guys.
There were a lot of interesting speculations about the future that Nick has left us thinking about the gender one in particular for me and for Thea probably. I also think that this year is going to provide a lot of the answers. We have three main examples that we mentioned, the Olympics, Qatar, Saudi Arabia. And I do think that they are going to yield both political answers and financial responses that will shape the future of sports. I completely agree. I, I thought it was fascinating when Nick was talking about sort of the no no real compass, right? No moral compass. And, and you know, these sports teams just take any capital. It doesn't matter from who. And I feel like that's going to change. I mean, we've seen it change a lot in business in the last 10 years, and I think sports will eventually catch up. The even more fascinating thing that I thought Nick said was, you know, how these sovereigns might be investing in a lot of gender equality, right? In women's sports, which would be very smart on their end. I don't know, guys. I don't want to be provocative, but you guys are way too optimistic. I mean, money is pouring into sports and it seems like there is no way to stop it. And people see the financial gain, people see a public relations gain, which as Nick says, may or may not be there. But it just seems to me that this is going to accelerate rather than decelerate. And I cannot imagine with what we're seeing now with Newcastle and where the World Cup is played and the money going into Formula One and golf and how the politicization of these Olympic Games that we've just seen in China, I wouldn't expect this to slow down, but rather to accelerate. So I'm going to have the last word here. You can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter for an analysis of global trends. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us.